So last week we covered the first eight verses, and we're going to just plot along with a very long chapter, chapter one. But we're not going to do we're we're not going to do all of it today. But I'm going to read verse nine for you, and then you join me on every other slide, okay? So verse nine says, "In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan." Together on verse ten. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was, in the, he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And everybody together in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were men, who were, I'm sorry, in their boat, mending their nets. And then everybody together on the last slide. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. So, hey, I want to say something particularly to everybody in the room who is 20-something or less, okay? I want everybody to listen, but if you are under 20-something, raise your hand, okay? You're, you're in your 20s or younger, okay? Listen very carefully because this is super important. You're living in a world today that is telling you, oh, the Bible's not true. The Bible's not scientific. The Bible, you know, is just myths and legends. But let me just share a story with you. This is Dr. James Tor. He is a well-known and respected intellectual and scientist. He's PhD in organic chemistry. He specializes in the field of nanotechnology. He is also the Chow Professor of Chemistry at Rice University, Professor of Materials and Science, Nanoengineering, and Professor of Computer Science at, Nano at Rice University. He's got a lot of titles, doesn't he? In fact, next slide here. Trying. You may have to change that for me, Matt. And mine did too. Let's see here. Okay, I can read off of this. This is fine. That's why I have these glasses here. Okay. Um, he is also a visiting scholar at Harvard University, and he's published 650 articles, 120 patents, and has seven companies with products ranging from uh, medicine to electronics to science and computer engineering. Dr. Tor was voted, listen to this, one of the top 50 most influential scientists in the world. Okay, This is one of the 50 smartest people in the world when it comes to science. And Tor says that he was brought up a Jew, but wasn't particularly interested in religion, especially after one day being brushed aside by a rabbi when he presented some questions to this rabbi. He began to meet Christians at Rice University, and particularly a man at a laundromat. And then he says, all of a sudden, something that was written in the Bible, somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, was calling me out of it. And suddenly, I felt convicted, and I realized that I was a sinner, 
and I read the scriptures. I knew I was a sinner. And how, how could I get God? Tor began uh, examining the Bible carefully as a scientist and wildly absorbing and studying the contents. He discovered that what was uh, the person in the laundry room that he said was right. And in fact, in light of what the scriptures affirm, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament, the forgiveness, the forgiveness took the temporary form of animal sacrifice. And while in the New Testament, it was Jesus who stood as humanity's Passover lamb, Jesus paid the penalty on the cross and was vindicated with his bodily resurrection. It was on the 7th of November, 1977, while alone in his room, that Dr. Tor realized that Yeshua was the Messiah. And I said, Lord, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my life. One of the top 50 scientists in the world. And let me just tell you, the path for him has not been easy since he's become a Christian. Because in the world today, there's only one opinion. And if you have any other opinion, they tell you, just shut up. Keep that to yourself. That's not politically correct. There's no room for discussion. And that's what universities used to be. Places for universal thought. Where we could discuss anything as intellectuals and, and have different points of view. But not any longer. In most universities, all discussion is shut down. And so here's my challenge to you. If you're a skeptic, if you're not sure, if you want to be a Christian, if you're not sure whether the Bible is true, I want you to consider that there's a lot of intelligent people in the world who have accepted Christ and the Bible. But here's what I want you to do more importantly. Don't just take their word for it. Okay? I challenge you. Read the Gospel of Mark for yourself. Read it. Just take your time. How dishonest it would be to say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, have you read it? Like, have you read it all the way through? Oh, well, then, you know, I've just heard my teachers say, are you going to take their word for it, or are you going to make your own opinion with your own mind? I challenge you to read the Gospel of Mark and see what it says for yourself. In this verses we just read, we will discuss four things this morning. We're going to discuss the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the disciples of Jesus. Let's jump into with his baptism. It says, in those days, well, what days are we talking about? Well, the previous verses say John the Baptist came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and people were going out into the wilderness to be baptized of John. And so here, the forerunner of the Messiah was laid. All the groundwork was there to present the Messiah. And now in those days, in that context, came Jesus from where? Nazareth. That's like saying Jesus from Clute. You know, it's not a, I thought I'd pick on a town nobody was from here. So it's, it's, it wasn't the most glamorous place. In fact, Andrew says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was really the wrong side of the tra tracks. And he was baptized by John. Now, if you remember, John is Jesus' second cousin. In fact, when Mary found out that she was expecting the Messiah, she got, took a couple months and got things together and then went and visited her aunt. And when the two met... John the Baptist was in her aunt's stomach, and the baby leapt when she heard the news about the Messiah, which gives a whole lot of credence to preborn souls, right? And so John, he was a pretty crazy character, okay? In fact, I don't think anybody has portrayed it better than the Chosen, which they seem to be nailing everything right now. And John the Baptist, he's got this amazing flat iron beard. He's radical looking. He's got camel's hair, which is a sign of repentance and mourning. He has a leather belt around. And what does he eat? 
Locusts and honey, right? He's got the protein and the carbs going. He's just a, a really crazy guy, and he's got that crazy look in his eyes. If you, if you haven't watched episode five, you really should, because it just they really do nail John the Baptist. And so here's a Baptist 2,000 years ago, and evidently times haven't changed. Here's a Baptist, today, Baptist preacher. It seems like this is the style for young Baptist preachers to have amazing beard. In fact, the longer your beard, the better your theology. And so here's some friends of mine who are Baptist preachers, and some of them have amazing beards. And here's my friend Daniel, who used to actually have the church here. Okay, And then, of course, here's another friend of mine. Actually, no, he's not my friend. But anyway, uh, but I, I just want to apologize to, a, to you as a church. I just can't grow one. I, I've tried. There's nothing there. I'm just not much of a man. But hopefully my theology means I have a spiritual beard of some kind, okay? But um, what's interesting is, at Jesus' baptism, it says when he came up out of the water, okay? It wasn't when he stood in the water. It wasn't when he was dunked in the water. It's when he came up out of the word. Every word in the Bible is super important, and this is important because what, what that was symbolizing was a parallel to his crucifixion when Christ was lifted up. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And here's why Je- one of the reasons why Jesus was baptized. He was foreshadowing his crucifixion. So when someone gets baptized, it is a picture of the death, the burial, and what? The resurrection of Christ. That's why we don't do this to people. That's why we don't do this to people. That's why we don't do this to people. None of that portrays the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why Jesus and John the Baptist both went down into the Jordan River. You don't go down into the Jordan River just to get a cup of water and pour on somebody's head. You know, or to just anoint their head or sprinkle them. Because baptism, the word baptism means to immerse. Here's what's really sad. When King James authorized the translation of the King James Bible... You know, back in those days, if you wanted to make a name for yourself, you would sponsor literature. Like you, a wealthy man would say, hey, Shakespeare, I'm going to be your sponsor, and I'm going to pay you a year to go write Macbeth. And then it would be like, Here we're gonna, here's the presentation of Macbeth. You know, here's, here it is in written form, and here's the play brought to you by so-and-so, rich man of the century, you know, and everybody would be like, oh, you're great, thank you. You know, King James wanted to be known, and he thought, and he was not a good person. He was an arrogant person. And he said, I want to sponsor the greatest literature. I don't want to just sponsor Hamlet or Othello or the Odyssey. I'm going to sponsor the greatest piece of literature of all time, the Bible. And that don't mean everybody will think that I'm the greatest king of all time. So what's, what all of his, most of his translators, though, were Anglican. And Anglicans believe in baptizing babies and sprinkling babies. So they wanted to translate into English, and they're looking at each other going, the word baptism means to dunk. And if we say dunk to the Anglican king, he's going to fire all of us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to transliterate it. We're going to make up a new English word, baptism. In the Greek, it was baptismo. So we're just going to leave it alone. It's just kind of like you know, when Mexican words come into English and we just leave them the way they are. Or French, you know, like when you want some ice cream on your pie, what do we say? A la mode which means in the way. It has nothing to do with ice cream. But anyway, we, we, will just, we will just transliterate it and put our language. And so they thought, we will just do that. We will just say baptism and leave it alone, and you can decide what kind of baptism you want, whether you want dunk or sprinkle or, or whatever. And it's very unfortunate because if they just translated the way it was to immerse, you mean to dip in water, okay? In fact, in those days, it would talk about a launderer would uh, 
take your clothes and they would immerse them in water, like in bleach, to make them come out white. Okay, so you don't sprinkle clothes with bleach. You dip them in bleach. Anyway, um, same thing happened with the word church. If they had just translated what it was, assembly, we wouldn't have this idea of, an, of a building. We would realize it's people gathering together. So Jesus comes up out of the water as a sign of him being lifted up on the cross. And it says right then, when he came up out of the water, the heavens were not just open, they were torn open. So I don't know if like how God did it, but it just must have looked kind of violent with the clouds just parting and brightness coming. And so, and of course, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, what happened to the veil in the temple? It was torn open. So the picture of Jesus' baptism, meaning access to God, is there. And access to God in the temple, torn. So that's the parallel that Jesus is trying to portray here. So in fact, Luke adds a little detail for us with another perspective. He says, now when all the people were baptized and Jesus also. So Jesus was identifying the people. So John the Baptist wasn't just here I'm baptizing Jesus only. No, there were crowds and crowds. And all of a sudden Jesus says, excuse me, excuse me. And he's walking up and he says, hey, I want to get baptized. And John the Baptist is like, wow, no way. You, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, it, no, it must be fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled and righteousness be fulfilled. And so he, along with all the people, so Jesus is identifying with the crowd. And it says, and, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens were open. So Jesus is communicating with God the Father. The heavens being open show that we have access through prayer to the Father. And Jesus begins his line of communication there as well. Um, and so the Spirit, it says, descending on him like a dove. Okay, so don't picture an actual physical dove falling on Jesus' shoulder, okay? Now, I believe it was some physical manifestation, but I don't know if it was a glow-in-the-dark dove or what it was. I don't know. All we know is we go with the word like a dove. Now, it doesn't say like an eagle, right? It doesn't say like a hawk or a falcon. It says like a, a dove. Doves don't have sharp beaks. They don't have talons. They really can't hurt anything. They're gentle. And it's showing that Jesus is coming the first time as a dove, a harmless, unselfish creature to be sacrificed. What did, what did they sacrifice when Jesus was at the temple eight days old when he was circumcised? Two doves. Okay? So Jesus is showing, hey, I'm coming here as the suffering servant. Next time, though, I'm coming back as the conquering king and the roaring lion. So don't think Jesus can't put on his tough side, okay? But this right here, the Holy Spirit's descending on him, and he, and it goes on to say here in Acts chapter 10, it says, after the baptism of John proclaimed, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So the anointing here, people use the word anointing all the time, and they really abuse the word, okay? In the Old Testament, Samuel anointed King David. What does that mean? It means you're the king. Okay, it means God has placed his authority on you. And in 1 John, when it talks about the anointing, it talks about the anointing on our eyes to be able to understand the scriptures. But today they're like, oh, that song was so good. It was so anointed, which means it's code for I got goosebumps. Anointing and goosebumps have nothing to do with each other. Okay, this is saying Jesus is the anointed of God. This is the Messiah. This is the king. He's not just David or Saul or any other king. He is the king, and so he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what the dove also symbolizes. And then not only do we have the sun in the water and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, but we also have a voice, and whose voice is it? 
It's the voice of the heavenly father. And it says, came from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, let's make notice something here. Notice when the father proclaims his love for Jesus and that he's well pleased with Jesus. Did he say it after Jesus fed the 5,000? Did he say it after Jesus walked on water? Did he say it after any miracle Jesus had done? Jesus had, at this point, had done nothing. He simply was who he was. And let me just tell you something. If you're waiting for God to say, I love you and I'm well pleased with you after you do this, this, and this, you got it all backwards. God loves you just the way you are. You are his child. And therefore, anything you good, any good that you do is not so God could say, okay, good job, good job. Oh, bad boy, bad boy, bad girl. Oh, good boy, good boy. Man, stop doing that. If you are a child of God, you are in Christ, and you are his beloved child, and he's well-pleased because he's well-pleased with Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, you've got it. So you go and do good things because you're saved, not in order to be saved or make God happy with you. Let me give you a little heresy alert, though, here. The Holy Spirit is not coming upon Jesus, and that's not in a way that... Let me restart it. The Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus is not the beginning of his deity or, the, or him being the Christ, okay? A lot of people teach that, and it's called New Age. They believe Jesus was just a man, but when he got baptized, something changed, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Jesus had the Holy Spirit before. This was a public signification that this is the king. So Jesus wasn't like unsaved before, no Holy Spirit, and now all of a sudden he got saved, and he got anointed, and all the things like that. But people will teach that. In fact, people are pretty well known. Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. And that's encouraging today. Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. That's her talking about the baptism of Jesus. He was just a man until God touched him and put the spirit of Christ upon him. That's, that comes straight from Oprah Winfrey. That's new age philosophy that Jesus was just a man, but at his baptism, he became the Christ. What does the Bible say? For unto you was born this day, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the city of David, a Savior who will become Christ the Lord when his baptism? No, he is Christ the Lord. He was born the Christ. He was Christ from the beginning of time. He's the one that spoke the world into his existence. He wasn't just a man, and God touched him with his finger. That's New Age philosophy, and it's crept into churches all across America, and it's just heresy. So let's ask ourselves this question. Why was Jesus baptized? And really, I could probably come up with 20, but I'm just going to come up with the most important few here. Number one, it was to confirm John's ministry. John's out there baptizing, saying, the Messiah is coming. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. So when Jesus comes and gets baptized, he's saying, yes, John, good job. Okay? Your baptism is legit. In fact, your baptism is so legit, baptize me. So I can identify with all the people and, and confirm your ministry. Because later, the Pharisees came to him and said, you know, I asked him a trick question. He said, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it of God or of men? And they're like, oh, man, you got us now. Because they knew if, if it was of, if they said it's of God, he said, well, then why didn't you get baptized? If they say if it's a man, the crowd would just torch him because everybody got baptized by John. The second thing is, and this is something I learned this past week. So John's dad was Zacharias. Zacharias was a priest in the temple. He was a Levite from the Aaronic priesthood. And what did Levites and priests do? They took the lamb and presented it to the altar. And so here John the Baptist is doing just like all of his dads and granddads and all them did. 
He's saying, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So instead of presenting a lamb, John the Baptist says the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So it's a pretty amazing thing that John was just doing his priestly duty. It was also to be publicly identified as the Messiah. They've grown up looking for the Messiah, and he's saying, hey, this is it. This is official. So people say, well, when did it become official? It became official at Jesus' baptism. Not that he, it was his public proclamation is what I mean. Not that he became the Messiah again. Don't want to have a slip there. Um, let's see. Hold on. Okay. And then the next thing is to point to the gospel. Again, what does baptism portray? Death, burial, and resurrection. So he's portraying the gospel, his own uh, crucifixion and burial and resurrection. And also to identify with sinners. He came to be one of us. And so he was baptized along with the others in the crowd. And the last, to display the Trinity. Here's the Son of God, God the Son in the water, God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You run into people all the time who don't believe in the Trinity. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? It is all simply right there. And you will run another type of heresy where people say the Holy Spirit is a force or a power or like electricity. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and a lot of other cults and deviant Christians believe that. But why does the Bible over and over talk about the Holy Spirit as a he? Jesus refers to him as him. That behold, I will send another comfort unto you and he will teach you all things. Okay? And then in, in, in the book of Acts, some people lied about their offering. And Peter said, why have you lied to God? And then a couple of verses later, he said, well, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Equating the Holy Spirit with God. So the Trinity is clearly taught. And people will say, well, the word Trinity is not even the Bible. Well, yeah, the word Bible is not even in the Bible. I still believe it though, right? I mean, there's a lot of words that we use. We come up with a word to capture, capture, sorry, my Yankee coming through here. We come up with words to label things so that we can consolidate our thoughts. And there's nothing wrong with that label as long as it's biblically accurate. So my question to you this morning is, have you been baptized since you made the decision to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. See, if you got saved at this age, but you were baptized over here when you were a baby or somewhere before that age, then does this baptism even count? No, it does not. Because what is a baptism? It is someone publicly professing that I believe that Christ died for my sins, that he was buried, and he rose again. If you truly don't believe that at the time it happens, then that baptism is not a, is not a very good bath at all. But that's all it is. It's just a bath and no soap and water. But if, so let me ask you a question. Have you truly been saved? Have you truly trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Then whatever date that was, have you been baptized biblically, scripturally, after that? If you have not, I would encourage you to talk to me about that. Let's schedule for you to be baptized biblically. The next thing we look at after Jesus' baptism is his temptation. His temptation. It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And it's interesting that Jesus has obeys the Father, gets baptized, starts his ministry, and you would think that the very first thing would be, and God blessed him with all kinds of great things. No, immediately it's the Spirit that says, okay, Jesus, let's go. We're going out into the wilderness. We're going out into the desert. It's going to be a rough experience. Starting right now, you're not going to be eating. You're not going to be eating for 40 days, and you're going to be out there by yourself in a rough environment. And so therefore, listen to me, Christian. When, when bad circumstances come into your life, don't immediately say, oh, it's the devil. 
Who put Jesus in bad circumstances? Okay? That you could be, God could put you in bad circumstances, not because, sometimes, yes, it's because of discipline, because maybe you sinned, and now you're having to pay for it. Okay? So if you do 45 in a school zone and get pulled over and get a humongous stinking ticket for it, don't say, well, the Holy Spirit's just testing me. No, you're stupid. You're stupid, okay? Just, just, just blame, don't blame it on the devil. Look at the guy in the, in the rear view mirror and blame it on him, okay? So the Holy Spirit can lead us into difficult times. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. And, and again, that, that right there alone sounds rough, okay? And it says, and he's being tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit, think about this, said, you got baptized, great. God the Father thinks you're great. Everybody thinks you're great. Let's go out in the wilderness, and Satan's going to tempt you. But who led him out into the wilderness? So there's no conflict here. We, wanna, we, we get so focused on everything is Satan or everything is the Holy Spirit. And don't you understand that Satan's just a little puppet that God says, okay, I'll let you do this. I'll let you do this. Remember the whole story of Job? Job says, oh, uh, you know, Job just loves you because you've given him so much. And, and, and he says, you know, if you took it all away, he'd curse you. And God says, okay, I'll let you take it away. I'll give you permission to do this, but you can't take his life. Satan is on a tight leash. And he's just like a crazy wild dog. And God's totally in control. And so I know that probably brings up a whole lot of other questions. But text me. I'll answer during question Q&A. So Satan does tempt us, right? But we are also have our own difficult situations. And watch this. And it says he was with the wild animals. And it's like if you went somewhere with your wife and somebody said, so are you married? Well, yeah, I'm with her. It doesn't mean you just happen to physically be in the same room. You're together as a couple, okay? And Jesus, the wild animals weren't attacking Jesus. They weren't coming up and ground him. No, he was with him. Because notice the first two parts are bad, wilderness, Satan. The second two parts are good, wild animals and angels. See, you know what this is a picture of? This is Adam in the garden, and Adam's being tempted by who? Adam even being tempted by who? Satan. All the animals are with Adam. But this time, the first Adam failed. This time, the second Adam succeeds. You see, he's being tempted and he fails, but Jesus is tempted and he succeeds. And he's there with him. And here, it says, and the angels were ministering to him. So all the time he's in there, uh, the angels are taking care of him and comforting him and encouraging him. I don't know all that stuff. And you know, Hebrews says, beware lest you've entertained angels unawares. Okay? In other words, you actually could help somebody. And the Bible says, God just stuck an angel there to see if you would help him. Someone, you know, broken down the side of the road. You pull over and get them some gas and help them out and whatever, and they go on your way. And then, you know, an angel just flies back to heaven and says, hey, God, they did it. They passed the test. And see, we're not aware but Jesus was fully aware because he's, he's the God who made the angels. And so our temptation comes from three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, All three are working against you. And what we need to do is be balanced in understanding how we're being attacked. Okay, Not everything is a demon or a devil. So we tend to go to one extreme or another. We totally ignore demons and the devil and act like they don't exist. And we have a Christianity that's just without any of that. And then we have the other extreme like, oh man, you're smoking. That's the demon of nicotine. You know, and everything's a demon of this and a demon of that. And everything just blame on that. And what that does is it absolves of human responsibility. It's not your fault. It's the demon. 
And what happens, we do these big fancy incantations and we lay hands on them and we cast out that demon and everybody's like on an adrenaline rush. And on Tuesday, they're right back to where they were. And they're like, well, is the demon back? No. The problem wasn't the demon. The problem was the person in the mirror. Now, the Satan can tempt you and demons can tempt you, but you're the folly of the one who gives in. They can't make you do anything. Okay, The world can't make you do anything. Your biggest enemy is your flesh. And if you conquer your flesh with the Holy Spirit of God, you can overcome these things. So Jesus was in the, the world. The wilderness is a picture of the world. And he had been fasting for 40 days, so his flesh was screaming for food. And then you got the devil or the Satan tempting him in a situation. And we had the same enemies that Jesus did. And how did Jesus win the battle? He quoted scripture. And we just finished the book of Deuteronomy, and guess what Jesus was quoting? Deuteronomy, okay? And so you need to memorize scripture. Think about it. Jesus could have just said, crush Satan. But Jesus set an example because he's 100% human. He's like, I could just defeat this by because I'm God. But no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to defeat him like any man should defeat him. I'm going to quote scripture because he's setting the example for you and for I. So some people say, well, why would the Holy Spirit do that? Because doesn't James say, God doesn't tempt anyone? No, the Holy Spirit didn't tempt him. He put him in a circumstance where Satan would. And I know it sounds like it's a contradiction, but this should make it very clear for you. Satan tempts you in order to see you fail. Satan tempts you in order to see you fail, but God tests you in order to see you succeed. The Holy Spirit didn't take Jesus out into the wilderness to see him fail. He wanted him to succeed. Satan wanted him to fail. It's all about the intention. So we go to the third thing, his ministry, the ministry of Jesus. It says, and after John was arrested, notice how Mark just breezes through things. Wait, well, what? What? John, got, John the Baptist got arrested? You know, it just makes it very clear here. And you think, wait a minute, John the Baptist, he is the forerunner of Christ. He did his job. And God said, here, John, here's a mansion and a Rolex and a Mercedes. Thank you for serving me. He got arrested. Man, what gives God and John the Baptist actually did get discouraged. He sent a message to Jesus after a while. He was in jail for a long time and says, hey, are you the Christ or should we look for another? And Jesus didn't say, man, how dare you question my authority? Or how dare you question well the Messiah? He said, hey, you know, go back there and comfort John and let him know that, that the blind see, the, the, the crippled are walking, the dead are raised, and let him know the gospel is being preached. Just go encourage him with the word of God. Because everybody gets discouraged. Even John the Baptist can get discouraged. So then after that time, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So Mark begins with the gospel of God. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. You see that this is the main point of, of Mark is the gospel of God. And he says the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. In other words, everything that needed to take place up to that point, has, has been the way has been paved. And think about this. There's so many things in history. There's so many things in history that were going on that were exactly right. Who is the empire ruling the world? Rome, okay? And one of the things that Rome was famous for was paving roads everywhere. Okay? Paving roads everywhere so that communication and word could travel, so that goods could be transported, money could travel faster. What was the language of the world at this time? Greek, yes. So Greek was the, the language of trade. Like today, you know how almost anywhere in the world you go, people speak English? Like in China, the kids are all taught growing up English because English is the, is the trade language of the world. 
Greek was the trade language of the world at this time. And prior to this, though, not everybody spoke the same language. So you could travel like even 50 miles away and not be able to communicate. It's just like, but now anywhere you went in the world, most educated people and even some uneducated people spoke Greek. So think about this. The time had been fulfilled for this is the perfect time for the gospel to spread. The roads are there, literally, and the language is there, and, and all that time had been fulfilled. In fact, Galatians, Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, did you see this phrase, fullness of time, a lot in the Bible? It means when God had done all the work, literally thousands of years preparing for this one moment, that's when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So, and then it goes on to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not just something in the future. You see, there is a kingdom of God. That's, God is reigning right now. Jesus Christ is the king of the universe, okay? The planet Earth is living in rebellion. And so the kingdom of God will creep into this planet more and more. And then someday Jesus Christ will return and take this planet back. You see, Adam was was supposed to be the, the one that Jesus delegated authority to, to run the planet. He said, have dominion over the earth. And Adam and Eve were supposed to be the king and queen of the earth, ruling and reigning over it under Jesus' authority. But they took that title deed that gave them the legal authority, and they passed it over to Satan. So now Satan is the God, little g, of this world. But when Jesus comes back, what does he do? He takes it back. And he breaks the seals one at a time, saying, I'm reclaiming the earth. It's mine. And so what are we asked to do? We're asked to repent and believe in the gospel. Not really two steps to being saved, but two sides of the same coin. Repent and believe. And unfortunately, in Christianity today, we have just believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't go to hell. Okay, great. Pray this prayer. Bloom. Great. And there's no repenting at all. There's no turn from your lifestyle. Now, again, I'm not saying you have to clean your life up to be saved. What I'm saying is you have to turn your back on that so Jesus can clean up your life. Do you see the difference there? If you, you realize you're walking on a wrong path and someone says, hey, hey don't go there. You're going to go over a cliff. And you not only stop, but you turn around. And at that moment, that's when Jesus Christ comes in and helps you walk in the right direction. So again, you don't have to be good to be saved, but you have to repent of your sin in order, and you're trying to save yourself and run your own life and give your life to Christ. Hebrews 6 1 says, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. You see, we try to do all these good works to impress God. And maybe if I do enough good, I can go to heaven. And God says, those works are all dead. You're like piling up a bunch of dead branches in front of me and trying to impress me. When what Jesus says is, I am the vine, you're the branch. You abide in me, and then you'll bear much fruit. Don't try to bear fruit so that you'll abide in Christ. You abide in Christ, and then you'll bear fruit. So you're repenting of the, all that ability to save yourself, and you're putting your faith in God, and more specifically in His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you're new to Revolution, this may seem new to you. Our, our mission statement is worship God passionately, love people genuinely, and start a revolution. And under those are two points. This is not just some catchy phrase. But there are, there's a purpose to this. When we say worship God passionately, what we want you to do is worship Jesus together weekly. Sunday morning is very important. Okay, Church is not an event. Church is a family that you get together with. Okay, And so I know that many of you have to watch online. That's great. But let me encourage you, especially if you're watching from another state, it'd be better that you are in person with the congregation 
if your health and things allow than to be watching us online. Now, if there's nothing else you can do, if you're home sick like many people are today and you're watching online, great, we're glad you're here. But do you realize that's just the backup plan? This is plan A. Online is plan B. We're supposed to worship together weekly. We are the body of Christ when we are assembling. And then we also want to encourage you to walk with Jesus daily. Please, please don't let Christianity be something you just do on Sundays and then the rest of the week you just live like you want to live. We want you to walk with Jesus every day. And then when we say love people genuinely, it's two things. You love your life group. We want everybody to be connected to a life group of some way, somehow. If you don't have one that works for you on the right night, right location, start your own. Okay, we'll help you with that. But get connected to a life group. If you get nothing else out of today, please listen to this, okay? Please listen to this. Becoming a Christian is very much an individual thing. But living as a Christian is not. You can't just live the Christian life as a lone wolf. You need community. You need your family. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot and should not do it alone. Not only do you need them, they need you. And so, but we don't want you to just get so connected to your life group, you lose connection with all your lost friends. Stay connected with your lost friends because you are the bridge to, their, to finding Christ. And then start a revolution is two things. Serving Jesus, we have a motto here, everybody serves. Even if it's as little as just picking up a chair or being a greeter, helping with preschool, hosting a life group, whatever. We want everybody to do something. Everybody has been given by God gifts and abilities and talents to use for his glory. We want everybody to serve. But we also, here's where all of this comes down to the pencil tip, the lead on the pencil, okay? It's sharing Jesus. If we do everything above that, but we don't end up sharing Jesus, all this is a waste of time. It's so that you can say, hey, you know what? I don't know about you, but my life was messed up and, and it's still not perfect, but you know who turned my life around? It was Jesus, and I like to tell you about him. That's what this all comes about. And so that's what's happening here in this passage is the gospel of the kingdom. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is not just something Jesus did. This is something that we must do. It's not just something we pray for missionaries to go out and do. We have to be sharing this in Pearland and Santa Fe and Houston and everywhere else. We're the ones sharing the good news of the gospel. Let's now talk about his disciples. Passing along the Sea of Galilee. So think about this. You kicked off this ministry that's going to change the world. What are you going to do now, Jesus? Go take a walk by the sea and talk to some fishermen. <laughs> that's your plan to turn the world around? Yeah, I'm going to just go talk to some fishermen. You know, because fishermen, they're really good public speakers. What? <laughs> you know, he, it's just a really strange plan to start changing the world. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, Get out of your mind that Jesus doesn't know these guys, and he walks up, and some stranger says, hey, you too. Us? Yeah. Follow me. Okay, sure. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that way at all. He had already started and developed a relationship with them, okay? If you read Luke, it talks about how he was talking to them, but he, he hadn't called them yet. Now, here's what was really different and upside down, and Jesus did everything upside down, if you haven't figured that out yet. In those days, rabbis... If you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, you would go to them and say, hey, can I follow you? And they'd be like, oh, let me think about it. Oh, who's your mom and dad? What's your pedigree? What have you been doing the last few years? Okay, maybe you're good enough. Come follow me. But Jesus said, no, no. You, follow me. And they're like, what? Aren't we supposed to ask you? No, I do things backwards. You follow me. And so here's the thing. Jesus calls us. You think, you know, we talk about, Did, have you found Jesus? Well, I understand what you're saying, but really, 
Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. You may say, I got really desperate in my life and I went out looking for Jesus. Well, maybe he led you to do that, but he was the one looking for you first. But notice what happened here. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So immediately is the key word. In the short little gospel, 16 chapters, Mark uses the word immediately 41 times. Four times in this, just a few verses we've read today. And it says, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So here's, so Peter and Andrew are brothers, and they're in partnership. They have a good fishing business. This isn't just some small little casting your net and reeling it in, okay? This was a major fishing business. In fact, it was so um, big that they had hired employees to help them with these boats. So Peter and Andrew brothers are in business with Zebedee and his two sons. So here's at least five men co-owners of a big business, big enough to have uh, servants working for them, okay? And it says, and they left their, their father Zebedee with, uh, in the boat with the hired servants, okay? So don't get this picture. These guys were just living in poverty. They weren't rich by any means, but they were successful guys because think about that. If they were just fishing for fun or just enough to feed their families to say, follow me, I hate fishing anyway, you know? No, he was asking them to walk away from a business, he was asking to walk away. This was quite a sacrifice. In one sense, the first two are called to leave their boats. Here, it's more than just leave your boats. I want you to leave your father and follow me. And again, uh, the chosen portrays it really well, so enjoy. Put that down for a catch. A little farther out. I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. All right, at your word.
I told you. I told you. I told you. That's Matthew, by the way. The boat, it's still out! My brother and the baptizer. <laughs> you are the Lamb of God, yes? I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. I'm sorry. We, we've waited for you for so long, we believe. But my faith, how sorry. Lift up your head, fisherman. What do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. As well. Yes, you, James and John, come, follow me. I'll take the fish into market and settle up Simon's death. I'll get some help to fill both of these boats. Are you sure? Yes, go. What will you tell Ima? <laughs> We've just been called by the man we prayed for our entire lives. And you ask me, what will I say when you miss supper? <laughs> go, now. Hey, it's Dallas and the creator of The Chosen. I could watch that all day. <laughs> That's amazing. If you haven't been watching The Chosen, please do. I strongly recommend it. Um, so 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, it says immediately, four times in this passage. It says he came up out of the water, and immediately Jesus saw the heavens open, right? And then in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and then immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. You see a trend there. If, if, you, if you've hurt someone and you need to ask for their forgiveness, when should you do it? Immediately. If you have a sinful habit or a lifestyle that you know is wrong, you know it, when, you, when should you repent and turn from it? Immediately. If you have not been baptized since you have been saved, when should you get baptized? Immediately. You guys are catching on quick here. If you know you're lost and you know you need to be saved, when should you trust Jesus to save you? Immediately. You can do that right here today, right now, whether you're watching online or where you're seated in a chair. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold what? Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Romans 5.10 says, if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, you and I, me, all of us included, we've all sinned against the holy God. We've also, also we've just shaken our face in, our, in his face and said, I'm going to run my life. Don't tell me what to do. And we, became, we declared war on God. But God says, you know what? Even though you want to run from me, even though you want to rebel against me, I'm going to send my only son to earth to die in your place, to pay for your sins and, much, and, and, and all, everything you've ever done wrong. And it goes on to say, much more now that we are reconciled to God, we shall be saved by his life, which meaning his resurrection. I would just love for everyone just to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. And I'm, I'm just pleading with God's people to pray for the, the Holy Spirit to open eyes, to understand and believe the gospel. And if you're here today and you don't know for sure you're saved, you don't know about this Christianity stuff about Jesus, let me just tell you, he loves you more than anybody in the entire universe. And he didn't just say it. He proved it. He took the worst things you've ever done and put them on his shoulders. The crown that was on his head was for every evil thought you've, you've had. The nails through his hands for every evil thing your hands have ever done. The nails through his feet are for all the places you've gone that you shouldn't have been. The spear in his side was from you betraying him and breaking his heart. And he loves you anyway. The price has been paid. It's not a matter of you be good enough. It's not a matter of you just try to quit and make your life better. The price has been paid. A gift, a free gift is offered to you today. Will you receive it? I want to lead you in a prayer. And the prayer doesn't save you. There's nothing magical about these words. You need to mean it from your heart. But it could be something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. My guilt haunts me all the time. But I thank you so much that I understand that you paid the price for all of it. I deserve to die, but you took my place on the cross. So I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. I give everything to you. I'm willing to turn with your help from all my sins. I'm willing to walk away from them. I'm willing to walk away from the boat and from the fish and everything that matters to me and follow you. Lord Jesus, save me today. Thank you for dying for my sins. I make you the Lord of my life. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you made that decision, I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to talk to you about what your next step as a believer is. And you can text me or call me anytime today at that number. In just a moment, we're going to do question and answer. Amanda, would you like to help me with that again? Thank you. You should have just said no just for kicks. Just say no. No, no, it's okay. I'm good. Um, be sure to get your t-shirts on the way out if you haven't got them already. And again, if you're a first-time guest, uh, they're there for you. Uh, for, for our people, they're $10 each. For our guests, they're free. All right. So there we go, Mena. Just go ahead. Here we go. And also, um, if you brought the movie passes that I'm going to give to someone else, you know, because some of you had like four movie passes, but you were only give away two, and I got your other two, make sure you give them to me before you leave. And if you don't have your movie passes, see me. So just either you're giving me or, or getting movie ta tickets if you're going today, okay? And uh, be sure to be early because it is a sold-out theater. There's 80 seats and there's 80 people. 
There might be 81 because I messed up. I don't know. Um, but get there early and let your guests know that if you get there late or they get there late, that you may not be able to sit together, okay? My family is probably going to wait to be seated because we may end up having to sit apart just to make it work out because I want you to sit with your guests. Um, Tammy and I, we have 14 guests showing up today, so we're excited about that. And so please, everybody pray, please. Today at 3.30, be praying because like I said earlier, we're going to have, instead of watching movie trailers, we're going to have the gospel up on the screen and songs and praise and worship and a video about Revolution Church. It's going to be a great day. All right, Amanda. Does God love Lucifer and a third of the angels which fell? And that's a great question. I've heard that one before. And there's, um, okay, here's, how, here's the best way to answer this. Love is not just something God does. Love is who he is. So I believe he loves his creation, and he created Lucifer and angels, so therefore he does love them. But because God is not just love, he is also holy, he cannot let sin go unpunished. Okay? So therefore, it'd be like a judge. You know, if you went to court because someone killed your little kid, and the judge says, you know what, you're guilty, the evidence says you're guilty, but you know what, I love you, so hey, go have a good life, I'm going to let you go. Case closed. You would be livid. You, you don't know who you would strangle first, the judge or the person walk out of the court. Because you can't just let that go, right? So when we demand justice for us, why do we not expect God to demand justice? So God did the just thing, and the third of the angels who followed Lucifer in rebellion uh, were cast out. Some were eventually, well, that's a whole other story, cast into the pit now, and some are still walking the earth. But anyway, that's another story. Um, the, the remarkable thing is, though, they were given no plan of redemption. Jesus did not die for the angels. And that's why the Bible says in multiple places that the angels look into the gospel and are just amazed. They're like, what? He died for these people who are lower than us? Wow. You know, and so they're, the angels who sinned against God, their, their decision was made permanent. The angels who chose to follow God, their decision was made permanent. That's why these angels can never repent and get saved, and the angels who didn't can never fall because God has locked them in. And when you and I, well, right now, your decision is locked in. You couldn't get unsaved if you wanted to. Your decision is locked in. You're a child of God. You've been born into the family of God. And just like, uh, I'll pick on Grayson. Grayson could grow up and be a punk, but guess what? Is he still a Patterson? Yes. Are you going to disown him or are you going to discipline him? You're going to discipline him. That's what God the Father does. He disciplines you to prove that he loves you. All right, long answer to a great question. Some people say we are part God or that we are God because we have God inside of us. Can you explain why this is incorrect? Um, it's incorrect because we are God's creation. We are not God. That is um, pantheism. Pantheism believes that God is in everything. He's in you. He's in the trees. He's in the birds. He's in the sky. It, that's why in Genesis, it's so important. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. So before the heavens and earth were created, God was there. He was existing without a tree. He was existing without a human being. Therefore, he is separate from his creation. If you um, painted a picture of yourself, the picture looks like you, but the picture is not you. We're created in the image of God, but we're not God. Okay, we do have, we are partakers of the divine nature, First Peter says, which means we have the Holy Spirit living in us, but that doesn't mean we are God. Will you expound on what it means that Jesus identified with sinners through his baptism? He was without sin, correct? Correct. 
So Jesus being born in Bethlehem, identified with humans, okay, doesn't mean that he became a sinful human, but he identified with humans. In his baptism, he identified with people and partaking of the gospel. Doesn't mean he needed to be baptized or anything like that. So it was just, I'm one of you, okay, but not as in a sinner, but as in we're all part of the kingdom and we're all believing in the gospel and I'm going to be the one fulfilling the gospel. How should Christians respond to vaccine mandates from the government or employers? Okay, First uh, Corinthians 9, I'm sorry, Romans 9 says that we are to obey the ordinances of man and, and that government is gi given um, as punishers, rewarders of those that do good and punishers of evil, okay? And so therefore, the only time we are authorized to disobey the government is if we, it runs head on with a command of God. Like Peter and the apostles said, they were told not to preach the gospel. And they went out and preached it anyway. And they said, hey, you broke our laws. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Okay? There's nothing in the Bible that says, thou shalt not be vaccinated. Okay? Now, I will say this, okay, just to kind of balance it out here. I do think it is an unjust law. Okay? I think the taxation in America is immoral. I think the amount that we're taxed and, the, and what the government does with our taxation is. But if we, think our, if we think this administration or any administration in the United States is doing evil things with our money, just think what Rome was doing with their money. And Jesus said, pay your taxes. Okay? Now, let's say, I do think it is, I do think that the mandate, in my opinion, is an immoral mandate. Okay? It doesn't mean I won't obey it. I'm still wrestling with it. I have not been vaccinated yet. So, anyway, I'm going to be vaccinated. <laughs> um, but let's say, let's say the government came to you and said, there's a person over here who needs a kidney. We're taking yours, Lauren. What, what, you're going to tell me what to do with my body? You're going to make me donate a kidney? Well, it's for the greater good. This person over here needs it. You're doing it not for yourself, but for others. Isn't that what we're hearing right now? It's not about you. Okay? Benjamin Franklin said that, that those who would sacrifice their liberty for security deserve neither. Did you hear that? Those that sacrifice their liberty for security deserve neither. And President Biden just said, this is not about your freedom, it's about your safety. Totally contradicting what the founding fathers are saying. So again, I'm not saying that you should not get vaccinated. I'm saying it's not a good law, but there are like a lot of laws, we obey them. But if they tell me, stop preaching the Bible, stop preaching the gospel, put me in jail. Okay? Because I know there's a direct command on that. If they tell me, don't go to church or whatever, I'm like, just, I'm, I'm going to beg. I can't find anything clear-cut commandment in, in vac about vaccinations in Scripture. I don't like the mandate. I think it's an unbiblical mandate. They can't tell. They, whatever happened to my body, my choice. You know, and now all of a sudden, it, it's, it's major hypocrisy on the whole deal. But, so, just to be clear, you heard me say, I'm not authorizing you to go out and disobey. If your employer does it, you can make that choice. Say, hey, then I quit. That's fine. That, more power to you. Okay, you, they may find another way to make you take it, but um, there's pros and cons. It may be that this vaccination is great and it's what's going to stop coronavirus. I just don't like that the government's constantly telling me, you better do it, you better do it. Because they say, trust the science. And this is the same people who say, oh yeah, there's like 19 different genders and, and, a blob of, and a baby's not a person, it's a blob of tissue. Really? So you got, that's your science? And you're going to tell me this, the same science that says that there's not two genders, a whole bunch? And that a baby's not a person tells me to get a vaccination. That's like, uh, 
You know what I'm saying? So again, it may be that they're right in the end, but the way they've gone about it is, is just not good. Why don't you tell us what you really think, Gary? This is a question from a six-year-old. Why did God create wild animals that can hurt people? Great. He didn't create wild animals to hurt people. Wild animals became wild after the fall. Okay? Um, in fact, you know how they say, well, dinosaurs, look at those teeth. You know, they're, they're eating flesh. No, they're not. Look at the teeth of a panda bear. Really long and sharp. And guess what he eats? Big melons. It's the crushed melons. Okay? I believe dinosaurs, you know, crush fruit just easily as could be and, and, and big leaves and stuff like that. I don't think their teeth, you, you don't see grinders in there. You see long, anyway. So all the animals then turn into, not all the animals, many animals turn into flesh eating after the fall. Okay? Um, anyway, I could go farther, but I won't. Okay. Is it true that the last battle of world history will be at the Valley of Armageddon? Um, yes, yes. If I remember right, my eschatology right, the Armageddon is the final battle. All the world converges upon Israel to destroy Israel, which is God's chosen people. And that's when the king returns and intervenes. And we return with him, which is great. Um, I don't think we return with him because he needs us, because it says out of his voice proceeds lightning and destroys the armies of this world. So Armageddon, yes, is the end. What pride do we need to get rid of to put Jesus first in our lives? What pride? Like as in what kind of pride? All of it? <laughs> How about that? Um, Yeah, die to yourself for sure. So, I mean, anything that you are proud of in yourself. Now, there, there are two types of pride. You can, your, your daughter could, you know, perform well at an orchestra on her violin and you're proud of her. Nothing wrong with that. But when you say, hey, that's my daughter. Hey, that's my daughter. Look at me. You know, and all of a sudden you're taking selfies of you and your daughter so everybody can see what a great parent you are. Now, all of a sudden you've crossed the line, right? So, um, any pride that exalts self I think that's, that's where you're going. Is 9-11 in the Bible? No, it's not. People who say it is are twisting scripture like crazy. Sorry, one comment. The people had one language at Babel and thought they could reach God, so he scattered them and confused the languages. God waited thousands of years for the world to come together again through roads and a common language so he could reach them. Right, so... That's a great point, a little correction there. They, didn't, they did not build the Tower of Bible to reach God. It says to reach the heavens. They were going to get there on their own. And that's what work salvation is. We're going to work our way to heaven. We're going to build our thing. We're, we don't need God to reach heaven. We can reach heaven on our own. Um, and what's so fascinating about that is the world was of one language, and God scattered them by changing the languages. And then at Pentecost, guess what God did? He had them all speaking and understanding one of the languages to bring them back together. So that, that's the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ is that even though we're all different ethnicities and even different languages, we can become one in Christ. So what he scattered at Babel, he restored at Pentecost. What's the difference between mandated vaccine and the mark of the beast? <laughs> you guys are I'm on just roll. reading this. <laughs> what did you say? I said, I'm just reading. Yeah, just reading. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, the precedent is not good that you're being mandated what to do with your body. So I think the groundwork is being laid. I, I don't think people in Washington, D.C. are all sitting there saying, how can we set up the mark of the beast? I don't think that's what's happening. 
but I think the precedent is getting there. I mean, we know where this is going. We've read the last chapter of the book, so we know where this is going. And so the, the governments of this world are doing what they're doing, thinking they're going to help the world be better. And if you, let me just challenge you to do this. Read Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, and it talks about how the kings and the rulers of this world basically want, don't, they want to throw off the, 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 the restrictions of God and Jesus and rule their own lives and make the world a better place. And they're, they're failing miserably. They're not doing a great job, are they? Is that it? Okay, um, is the mark of the beast a mark or, oh wait, is the mark of the beast a mark of the devil or this world? Um, so it's the mark of the beast, okay? So the, the, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are the unholy trinity, okay? We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Satan is a copycat, so he has his trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and Antichrist, okay? So yes, they're all tools of Satan. So yes, ultimately the mark of the beast is not just the world, it's the world being used and, of course, it's an economic thing because it says no man could buy, sell, or trade without the mark. So it's an economic enforcement to be able to do that. But the stipulation is when you take it, you're saying, I believe that the Antichrist is the Christ. We know him as the Antichrist. But here's the thing. Think about this. We're, we're preaching that Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Imagine someone who doesn't know the Bible very well and doesn't know Jesus, and you've been telling Jesus is coming, and then all of a sudden they see on CNN, this guy claims to be the Christ. And he's going to get rid of coronavirus. He's going to solve all the world's problems. He's going to bring in peace. And guess what? He actually succeeds for three and a half years. And I'm like, man, he really is the Christ. And he's going to claim to be the Christ. And people will accept him. So people will actually think they're bowing down to Jesus and accepting the mark of God when they're not. Okay? And again, it gets complicated and scary, but I'm not an expert on prophecy. But I mean, you all really on a pro prophetical. Is this the same person asking no, all these no. questions? Yeah. <laughs> if vaccines are created from aborted fetal cell lines, should we still embrace the vaccine? Oh, yeah. So, um, I again, this is so imperfect. I don't like where it came from. The fetal lines that were taken without permission. Um, but some people could say, well, but they're there. I, I, I still don't like it. I don't know if there is vaccines without it. I don't, I don't like it because, I mean, it's just like, this is the same stuff Nazi Germany did. But again, this was done a long time ago. But Nazi Germany would take stuff from the, the Jews that they executed and trans, they would they'd just execute Jews, take their kidneys, give them to Germans, take their livers, give them to Germans, you know, do all kinds of scientific tests on them for the good of, and they said, oh, it was for the ultimate good. But it's like, and that's why the Americans, if I've read it right, destroyed the laboratories of the Germans and all the data. Because they're like, we don't care if it helps the human race. We don't want it. If it costs 6 million Jews their lives, we can do without their research. And I, I'm, I like that. So, I, again, the whole thing is extremely uncomfortable. And I, I, I can't be dogmatic on it, though, and say, yes, it's absolutely wrong. It's absolutely right. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff we have today that we don't know where it came from. I mean, many of you are wearing shirts that were made by kids in sweat camps who are getting paid a dollar a day or next to nothing. So, I mean, we could find wrong on, on the, under every rock, I guess. So I, I, I probably need to do a little more research to have a dogmatic opinion on it. And even then I might not. I think you already did this, but that's the last Yes. So yeah, a reminder about the tickets. If you need tickets or you have extra tickets, make sure you get them to me so we can get everything straight door. If you, if you forget or lose your ticket though, 
don't worry about it. It's just to make your guests feel good, okay? Because they're not taking them out the door. I'll be taking them. I have a list. All right, let's stand and let's pray and uh, thank the Lord for his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gospel. And thank you that uh, it's written so we can understand it. And it's so, it's so well explained by scripture and other passages. Lord, it's just so rich. We could just wait in this for days and days. But we thank you for our time together where we could praise you and lift you up with our song, as well as exalt you through the, the reading and teaching of your word. I pray that we'd go forth and truly be light in a dark world that's getting darker every day. We pray that you would use us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great week.